So um, GIF specializes, or it's really interested in in inclusive inclusivity in the criminal justice system. But before we hop on to more heavy stuff, maybe we could ask Jif what inspired her to what inspired her to teach criminology and how she ended up in this role as a tutor. Thank you, Charmaine and Christine. I'm so excited to to be here today for the first ever uh, podcast. Um, so the best way to understand, I guess, how I have ended up as an associate lecturer in criminology is to go through my background. So I started um, actually my undergraduate here at the ANU. I won't say how long ago. Um, but I did sociology and English literature, so nothing to do with criminology at, at the time. And I did my honours in sociology looking at um, what it's like to live with uh, chronic illness because I have a disability. Um, and from there, I decided that I would be interested in pursuing um, a PhD, looking more broadly at um, what it's like to be a student at university with disability or chronic illness. Um, I deviated briefly and went and did a Master's of Social Research to get some better um, practical skills and how to, how to do research and what, um, what that looks like at the professional level before starting my PhD. And in a slightly, I suppose, thematically um, relevant sort of story, I kind of got kidnapped into criminology. <laughs> so um, in my first year of my PhD, one of my panel members, um, Dr. Adam Masters, came to me and said, what are you doing next year? <laughs> and I was like, well, hopefully I'll still be doing my PhD. <laughs> um, and he's like, would you like to come and work for me at the Transnational um, uh, Research Institute on Corruption? And I was like, that sounds so, so cool. Um, and so I uh, began that work in, in 2019 with Adam. So I work as the administrator for TRIC, the Transnational Research Institute um, on Corruption, um, doing all sorts of um, small projects looking at the sort of state of um, um, integrity and integrity reform projects here in Australia and a little bit of overseas. And from then I was asked to do tutoring in um, different criminological courses. I think I started off with Gabriel Wong. Amazing tutor, by the way. Incredible. <laughs> he's not just an incredible tutor, he's a wonderful person. Um, I hope you get him on the podcast because he's just fascinating. Um, so I, I think I tutored for stints in uh, for 2001 doing criminology, um, which I'd actually done as an undergraduate. Um, so that was sort of my inroads to teaching. Um, and I discovered, and I didn't expect this because I don't really like public speaking or anything like that, but I discovered I adored teaching, that like tutoring was the coolest thing in the world, um, for me anyway, and like that crim students, in my absolutely not biased opinion, were the best students I'd ever come across. Nice. Um, <laughs> and I, I shout out to both of you because I have taught you both, which mm. is really cool. Um, yeah, and then I just sort of kept taking courses and um, I had a lot of opinions about things. I had opinions about whether or not we were including enough um, topics about like inclusivity and um, and like uh, for disability in particular, um, a little bit about queer stuff as well. Uh, because while we have an, 
extraordinarily broad, um, sort of like array of content across all our courses. These were areas that I felt um, were underrepresented. Um, and I'm sure there was more to it um, in the process. And I, I hope my boss isn't listening <laughs> to <laughs> this. Um, but I, they gave me a course eventually and were like, okay, you can take all your ideas. Um, so I started teaching one of the criminology capstones, uh, criminology uh, 3005, Crime and Diversity, Inequality in the Criminal Justice System. Um, yeah, so that's sort of my, my inroads to becoming a criminologist. I have very rudely forgotten to ask Chrissy to introduce herself. <laughs> so <laughs> I am Chrissy. Yeah. Um, I'm a third year criminology student and first year liberal arts student. I have like very diverse interests in um, criminology, but I often will start going on a tangent about existentialism and or pre-ordering. So, so one I day you're going to be an academic is what I'm hearing. M maybe. <laughs> Speaking from experience. Speaking from experience, <laughs> that's how it goes. Chrissy, no, my last Yeah, so maybe we can go on to like the more content content heavy things or things that things that um Jeff has a keen interest in. Mm -hmm. So from what I understand, Jeff personally I have gone through the corruption course with Jeff. Mm -hmm. Um I think it would be good to first define corruption and how and how yeah you interpret corruption as someone who has studied corruption mm. and has written inquiries into mm. establishment. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a huge question, as I'm sure you remember <laughs> from the course we, we teach um, um, at a master's and I teach the um, summer intensive course, Corruption in Our World. And I think we devote the first whole day to attempting to define what corruption is because we've got like, you know, this broad um, conceptualization, perhaps from a social level, that it's the, the misuse of power. Um, and that's correct. It is the misuse of power or the abuse of power. But what does that mean? Like, are we just talking about um, in the public sense? Well, a lot of our laws and um, uh, the focuses we have are about the abuse of, like, political power or public power. Um, but that's not necessarily the extent of what we can label as corrupt acts. And it's certainly not what the, the sort of average person would consider corruption to be. So we can have things like sports corruption, which Charmaine Webb talked about this before, I believe. Yeah. Um, you know, which is you know match rigging for personal gain. Um, you could have have somebody deliberately um, mess up a game um, because there's money riding in it in the background, which doesn't have anything to do with with um, government or pub other public positions, but is still you know it's 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 corruption. It's going against this idea of like how things should be. Um, my particular focus and, and, and interest within the corruption space is in, integri is in integrity and integrity reform. So I'm really fascinated by, you know, what, what do we socially consider integrity to be or good, good social behaviour? Um, you can see my, my sociological background coming through there, I guess. And I, I like to, to sort of use this space to, to look at the tension between what the average Australian would expect um, uh, 
from the public, from the government, from institutions that um, control or influence our lives. Um, and that would include some ways like the university. Um, and and then also like, well, but what, what, what do those institutions and those governments believe um, integrity should involve? And they're not always the same thing. Um, for example, back in, in 2021, I did a, a submission to Parliament. This was in the, the days before the, um, the establishment of, of the NAC, of the, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, which has, um, as you would know, um, just been launched this year really recently. But back in 2021, so under the former government, there was a proposed bill that had a lot of academics concerned about its limitations in, in what sort of powers it would have to investigate forms of um, specifically political corruption. Um, and my submission was concerned with, well, obviously the law has to be contained. You can't have an all-encompassing act. But will this proposed bill actually do what the public thinks it needs to do in terms of uh, being able to hold ministers to justice or members of the public service. Um, and that sort of really, that piece that I, that I submitted with a co-author really sort of um, started this process of thinking more broadly about how all of our different um, institutions around Australia that are designed to uphold and enforce integrity um, might not always be well understood by the public. And like sort of, well, who's responsible for that? Is it because of a lack of publicity? Is it because people aren't actually wanting to engage? Like, you know, this might not be of interest to people. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how, I, I could probably keep going, but I'm sure you could like. Yeah, like I think in regard to the neck, I one of the things that came to me during the corruption course was how you and Adam mentioned that in, there's some types of corruption which is legalized yeah. and some types of corruption which is illegal. Yeah. So could you expand more on that topic of how like maybe the neck would would hold people in public accountable mm -hmm. and like how do you then identify w what is legal corruption? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a really it's a really tricky one. Um, but an excellent question to sort of grapple with. So it does depend on where you are. I know in part when we discussed um, this idea of legal corruption, we, um, we talk in the context of like lobby groups. Um, so this is a, a more prominent issue in the United States um, than necessarily Australia, but it's certainly still a problem um, in Australia in the context of political donations, for example. So we have rules set up around the disclosure of donations to political parties, but whether or not those rules adequately constrain what you might consider corruption is a debatable point. So for example, say you've got a, an organization that there's a restriction, I, I, I can't off the top of my head recall what the actual upper limit is for a donation. But let's just say they give $10,000 to the political party that's currently um, in government. In a hypothetical, I don't know the actual um, uh, government. <laughs> um, and that's all above board. It gets declared. Fantastic. Wonderful. We know where that money comes from. What's not always easy to trace or um, 
necessarily illegal because it's not necessarily been covered up in any respect is is that you know another representative of that organization goes to the government and says well we're giving you this ten thousand dollars um and we have like this interest in in you know you not passing this bill or you making a specific amendment to this bill um that behavior is not always illegal um, in the, the literal sense of the word, but it does raise questions about the susceptibility of government and opposition and just like any member of, of parliament to um, external influences and influences that don't come from their constituents, which is where you know your, your MPs and your senators should be you know, representing the interests of their constituents, of their electorates. Um, so when we discuss that, we, we, we're pretty much talking about that tension around, okay, so it's, it's okay in a, in a technical sense, but how would, you know, like how would you guys feel about, um, say there's a, let's have a hypothetical, say a, um, here in the ACT we have a lot of debate at the moment around um, gambling and how much gambling is um, legalized and also subsidized by the government and, and like where profits like might run, uh, run towards um, government through taxes. Um, we know from gambling harm research that it's you know incredibly risky for a lot of people. It causes a lot of, of, of pain and trauma and suffering. So if you guys heard, for example, that like a, a gambling uh, uh, company gave a donation to the ACT government and said, "These again, I'm just so I'm not defaming anybody. This is all hypotheticals, not real. <laughs> not real. Um, you know, would you would you think that if they received that, was that would would you think that would be ethical? Do you think that would be any reasonable thing to do? I'm turning this into a tutorial, by the way. <laughs> um, oh, I, I mean, when you when you said that, I instantly thought of um, like just discussions of friendship and that like friends should like associations and yeah, like yeah. providing donations yeah um but yeah i think because gambling has like billion dollar revenue mm. like a huge stake and if the government were to have like accept a donation it's kind of like accepting um what they're doing and like the problems that it's causing like mm -hmm. just in terms of mm -hmm. continuing the problem mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah i did read an article about gambling recently in New South Wales. Um, I think they're, they're not allowed to advertise it externally. They have to take that out. The VIP lounge or like the, the golden lounge lounge mm -hmm. that are outside the buildings mm -hmm. and stuff. But you mm -hmm. just have to like advertise it. Um, mm -hmm. Would that be discreditable? Mm, yeah, absolutely. A lot of the reform work that we do in these spaces, not to make this necessarily about gambling, but we can more broadly consider um, how we do harm reduction in society, which as criminologists we're obviously very concerned about, is in the restriction of adver advertisement. So you know that like with um, tobacco products, for example, we've had, um, we've had laws against the promotion of tobacco products for, for decades now. Um, and there is a push to make gambling the same. Um, um, I know like for example, the, the Guardian, the newspaper recently decided to cease accepting um, advertisement money from any gambling uh, groups because of the known social harms, which is a really interesting social um, uh, sort of insight, I guess, into what the public is thinking about these harms. Yeah, I think there's, it sounds like there's a huge crossover between ethics and like what you consider 
like a normative question of like, should this be acceptable or should yeah. this not be acceptable? But given that every individual will have different benchmarks on what is ethical and what's not ethical, mm -hmm. how do you then come up with like a uh, reform that is up to this certain tangible benchmark, which is sort of arbitrary? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a pretty incredible question. Um, you're sort of asking the question of how do we organize society um, at a certain <laughs> extent, like how is it even possible, which, you know, that, that's what sociology is and that's what criminology is. Um, like the, the processes are so messy and so complicated. Some of them like are done through um, at the, you know, at the purely legal um, legislative level that obviously occurs in, in parliament where the, the pol you know, politicians all get together and, and debate this and, and you know, they put, you know, you table a bill and, and make amendments and everyone will, will fight and argue, um, you know, tooth and claw until it gets passed. Um, but that's sort of the end part of a lot of the conversations to even start framing um, how we can agree on what is, as you said, what is what is ethical. And it is, I'm really glad that you did bring that up because the intersection is obvious. Um, um, well, that's what sort of what we do as academics. We start to think, um, well, you know, how, how does this appear? How, how what are people thinking about this? And we might do that through direct research. So we could go out and, and you know, we could go out right now if these microphones were, were portable and, and ask everyone walking past, okay, what's, what's ethical behavior to you? What's corruption to you? And get a sense of that from the social. Um, we can do media analyses. I've done this a few times. Um, get a sense of like from from newspapers and journalists. Well, what do they think that people are interested in hearing about? Because that's usually a good way to get get um, like a, a sense of the pulse of the public. What, what what are people stressed about? What are what are they engaged by? What are they clicking on? Because it's of interest. Um, for example, we know last year's election. It was really one upon issues of ethics and integrity, and that's it's you know. That's why you know the la Labor did run on um, on an integrity platform, and that was responded to obviously because they did win the election, particularly by the youth vote. So we know that um, our younger voters were particularly concerned with the issues of ethics and integrity. So at least from their perception, if not the reality, the perception was that there was a, a mismatch between youth perceptions on what ethical behavior and integrity looks like as Australians, as opposed to what they, they sort of thought was happening within government. Um, yeah, so that's sort of like, I think the debate always sort of starts at the, the social level when researchers and other stakeholders um, uh, sort of get involved before it becomes legally defined. Um, just like we're kind of wrapping this up, yeah. um, what, do you, what does it mean to like breach public trust and to like lose public trust and like, does corruption necessarily, is there always an advantage for something? Yeah, so there, there's, there's almost always an advantage for somebody, whether it's the person who's actually acting corruptly, corruptly is not, it's not always directly them, it, it's, it's debatable who that can um, be traced back to. Um, so public trust is mutable, it can you know, you could point to examples, but we're not going to cover the entirety of um, of the experience of public trust. 
So if we look at, for example, I'm not sure if you guys followed along with the recent inquiry into the Royal Commission into um, RoboGate. Yeah, did you see a little bit about that? I didn't, but Chrissy looks like <laughs> she definitely <laughs> has. Um, we could like touch on that in uh, having Frank this um, yeah. statistician come on and talk to us about RoboGate in yeah. terms of like the uses and abuses of statistics. And I thought that was like quite interesting how it wasn't um, like it wasn't it's not widely known thing about mm. RoboGate skin, even though it was like the only thing that can be used in the game. Um, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's it's a massive obviously the scandal around Robogate's massive in that it's now been discovered to be in um a legal way of debt collection through services Australia and that's sort of what that inquiry was into was looking at well how did this happen? Um and a lot of the submissions, if you read the the, the discussion down the, the commission report, um, you can see with um a lot of the the victims of the scheme talking about not being able to trust the government anymore because they didn't feel that they had done anything wrong and then the government said, well, you have done things wrong. Um, and then, of course, it turns out, no, they hadn't. It was it was illegal. It was a not well thought through plan that was pushed through by several different regions. So the long-term effects of that, well, actually, when you get Adam on the podcast, this is like his special area of public trust. So he'll probably reject everything I say maybe. <laughs> But what um, what he sort of looked into um, and has said before is that it's so, so hard to gain public trust in the first place. It's you've got to be, you know, you've got to be transparent and you've got to be consistent and you've, you know, as you as an institution like um, Services Australia, like a government department, um, you have to, you know, your transparency there is, is, is critical and you have to treat people with respect as if they were adults. And what RoboDebt did was not treat people with respect or as adults um, or even as honest people. Um, and the process that I think Services Australia is going to have to go through to restore that trust is going to be years and years in the making. Um, and also the you know the ATOs have the same problems, etc. We have measures in social science, social science and social research for how to how to look at public trust. For example, the um, as a plug, I guess the ANU ANU poll here at um, we administer that over in the um, Centre for Social Research, um, and we ask we have asked questions before of public trust, and it's literally things like how well do you trust the public, uh, the, the the government? How well do you trust police? How well do you, you know, trust the court? So all the systems or the institutes of, of, of social control. And that goes out to um, an extraordinarily large um, sample of the, of the Australian population. And we know that there's like dips in trust after certain events occur. And um, I think the last one, and I, I don't quote me on this because I, I can't recall if um, if this is the last one or if this is from last year, um, showed record low trust in um, across um, most institutes of, of social control. Um, and that comes on the heels, though, of some pretty tumultuous um, years. You know, you had COVID, you've got RoboGate, you've got um, changes in government, you had... We've had scandal after the natural disaster, the, the bushfires. So we're still experiencing a lot of fallout from what um, some people at least saw as being a mismanaged response to the bushfires, for example. Yeah. 
I think you answered the question that I was going to ask next, but um, like according to Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, yeah. Australia ranks 18th place, which is the worst result Australia has ever recorded based on a 2020, the 2022 result. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering how, like, it's, is corruption a big problem in Australia and are people very concerned about it, mm -hmm. especially like when you compare different age groups, because mm -hmm. you've mentioned that the younger voters now are more are more insistent on on there being a certain level of transparency and integrity. But as a broad as a broad society, do you think like how do you think Australians perceive corruption? Um <coughs> so CPI is, uh, is is wonderful. Transparency International's work is incredible, and I, I do recommend like people going and having a look at all the work that they do. But it is a perceptions index, so it's it, this is not necessarily not directly evidence of high corruption in the state so much as the belief that there is higher levels of corruption. Now, of course, um, as we know in um, as criminologists here in this room anyway, a lot of what we do is by proxy measures and proxy data. We can't all, we can't directly go and find a lot of um, information all the time that's like primary source because we can't just go and find every criminal in the country and say, hello, can you <laughs> can you talk to us about something? Um, so uh, uh, corruption is one of those hidden sort of cases. People who are acting corruptly are not doing so in a way that we can directly observe it 90%, 99% of the time. So the CPI is an incredible um, and important resource for us to to grapple with the with the public sense of what is happening, and then we have been experiencing um, this long term fall in in trust in, in, in or in our position there. Um, I forget what it's um, the, the folks say. I think it was like from number thirteen to eighteen. Uh, is it like eighteen? I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but. Um, and that's been over sort of a decade of this like incredibly falling um, perception. So some of that is is you know it's responsive to various events that happen, um, be they actually corrupt or otherwise is not always um, directly relevant. I guess it's it's, it's obviously a part of it, but um, it's that that they are perceived as being corrupt or at least perceived as not being. Um, or, or not holding integrity. So, uh, the thing, sorry, the second part of that is also that you are having more and more people, a, a new generation of, you know, your, your generation coming through and being really actively engaged with these things. You care about the future of the country. You care about what um, our governments are doing and the other, like the, the within the criminal justice system, we're concerned about, well, what is, what is the, the 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 police doing? What 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 are courts doing? What what do prisons look like, etc.? And these all come together to make us think. Well, you know, according to my baseline or my benchmark as an individual for what is good behaviour and what is just behaviour, and we could have a whole conversation around the the notion of justice or a just society. Um, and you know, if if I, my benchline is here, but these institutes these public institutes are, are all the way over there then i'm not going to perceive you 
or them rather as they as being um, upholding integrity and that's what I think we're seeing reflected in Transparency International CPI yeah yeah like you talked about perceptions and how perception has been decreasing yep yep <coughs> but the people coming up with the new new reforms or new um, bills that, like that the NAC. yeah like the neck yeah. they are coming from an organization that people have lower perception mm. of um, being transparent mm. so how do you think that would affect like if I didn't have trust in this organization and this organization is going to say here here's something that I'm gonna do to make you gain trust in mm. me but if the trust is already broken how effective do you think new bills will be in the well that i think is the biggest test for the NAC this year so it you know it um opened in july um or the beginning of august within the last month it's not very not very long um and i think the first thing that the commissioner will be um focusing on um with the huge amount of submissions that have already been been made um, will be the handling of those because I think what's going to increase public trust um, that in, in this in this particular institution, but also perhaps across the other um, areas like government, will be in how well they handle um, and what the outcomes of um, those investigations will be. Um, and I honestly don't think we can know until that happens. And they're obviously very long investigations. We're not going to see anything. I mean, I'd be surprised if we saw something this year. Um, but, like, I think, like, that's really going to be the first time that we can get a sense of if there's going to be um, a belief um, that that is going to perform its duties. So there's a lot riding on it. There are people really invested in this. One thing I will say is that, um, and, like, I'm not – this is like moving slightly, like the political corruption stuff is moving slightly outside of where I normally sit. But that bill was introduced by an independent MP um, and backed by the Greens. So you, you already saw that uh, it was pushed, you know, obviously went, um, you know, pushed through by, by Labor once they were um, elected. But you already started to see in that space that there was um, more movement for these systems of control and investigation by smaller bodies across parliament. And those bodies became parliamentarians because they got votes. So we could even just look at the fact that we've had the highest record of independent MPs and senators in like forever, um, or like in, in the last election, last few elections as being perhaps evidence that the public, the voters are less impressed with the, you know, Mission, uh, um, you know, mission normal that that occurs in par in parliament, and that that's probably like already the first step to like how we're changing that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe to wrap up this serious like like conversation about corruption before we go on to like your other niche interests of diversity in the criminal justice system, is there any interesting corruption case that you have ever come across with lecturing and teaching? corruption that like an interesting story that you've come across yes yeah, so i think one that i i think i i i lecture on in um in corrupting our world is this guy 
who started a fake university here in Australia. Um, and it was, it's been a few cases, but this guy in particular, um, <laughs> it was designed to attract international students. Um, and the, uh, and, you know, we'd, so we'd say to, you know, recruit overseas and be like, come and, you know, do a degree through my institution that didn't exist, of course, but he had things registered and he would collect money from the government, like, like you know, do hex stuff um, from government. Um, and I say it's interesting, not in like a quirky, <laughs> um, this not is in funny, a good way. or whatever way. It was interesting because I, I just think as a motivation, because I'm so invested in higher education, I think it's like I, I, I take my role as I'm sure you guys both know, as um, as a teacher and a, a convener so seriously, I just found that so incompatible with my own moral understanding of what to do. Like he not only um, had such a potential negative impact on international student recruitment to Australia, like he's lost, can you imagine, like sort of lost, he, he stole so much money from them. Um, so he not only had a financial hit, but the loss of faith in the Australian education system is just, astronomical but then also the loss of like reputation across like across the higher education sector I think is something that's I, I just find it so confusing I think perhaps that's why I'm interested in crop not to say that I'm like <laughs> a perfect uncorruptible person but I, I'm often <coughs> most interested in these spaces where I just do not understand the motivation I do not understand how someone could possibly do that I, a lot of the time I think these sorts of crimes are even more abhorrent than individ than certain individual one-on-one -on -one crimes because it affects so many people in so 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 many ways and I, I just I just think that the people behind them must just I I, just, I don't understand them at all. Yeah. Now that Chris, you wanna pose some questions to Jeff regarding diversity in the criminal justice system. Like, what do you think are like the most pressing issues regarding like inequality in the criminal justice system, and like how how to address the educators in the inequality in our population? Mm, mm. So I guess the first thing we have to decide is what's the list of inequalities. So, I mean the 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 one that perhaps has the most visibility as an area of inequality is obviously the treatment of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Indigenous persons in this country. We um, have such a complex and, and, and horrible history of, of colonial oppression that is just baked into our criminal justice system. Um, and that is uh, an area of immense um, importance and focus and reform, not only across the justice system, um, but within the research field as well of, of you know of criminologists we are constantly grappling with undoing those harms and what our role is in undoing those harms um but then there are also so many other areas so i i you know specifically am invested in looking at disability in the criminal justice system both for people who um are perpetrators or alleged perpetrators like what role does this disability have in leading people to criminality um, and also then as victim survivors and, and what sort of vulnerabilities does being disabled or having disability um, expose you to in terms of being a, you know, a victim survivor of crimes. And I think 
while we've had so many um, progressions towards better um, outcomes for both those groups um, in the CJS, there's still so much work left to do. Um, whether that's, you know, reforming laws around, um, you know, mental health and and perpetration of crimes. That, that's such a complex area that I don't want to, like, fully get into it, but, um, like, you know, how do we determine if people are culpable of crime? Um, that has a history that goes goes back hundreds and hundreds of years back into, because of our specific legal history, back into British law and the um, the establishment of um, of um, sort of like what sort of what, what, what leads to the fate they say do of like um, not guilty people's insanity, um, and that that's such a complex area for me because. In some ways, obviously, uh, it, it seems obvious that there are certain people who are n who can't be culpable for crimes because of of their of their um, uh, state of mind, of their of their capacity for for rationality, perhaps. But on the other hand, part of me as a disability researcher and advocate feels really uncomfortable about that because that just speaks to the paternalization of the medical world and this idea that there are people who just aren't allowed to or aren't capable of, of autonomy and making decisions for themselves. So not that I'm advocating necessarily that, that, that um, you know, mental health should be um, treated, this, you know, not considered in the criminal justice system. I just find it a very uncomfortable space as it currently stands about, you know, what does culpability mean in that context? And I don't think we have it right. I don't know that I have the answer specifically outside of this is a space that is uncomfortable. And when you look at specific cases and specific trials, I don't believe we handle it well, which sort of leads to the second part that I'm really interested in, which is literally what do we do in the courts and in prisons um, and even you know in police stations with people who have disabilities? Um, and I, I quite mean literally, what do we do? Are these accessible spaces? Everything from the physical, like, is, you know, are jail cells, I don't know, accessible by wheelchair or with certain kinds of uh, crutches? What if you're an amputee? Um, through to, you know, the cognitive. Um, do you always have, rep uh, tie it back to last one, I guess, do you always have representation? Um, how accessible um, are courtrooms from a, like, if you've ever attended court, and I think both of you said that you had, um, there's certain language that is employed, and I think you said Mary will be coming on next week to talk probably about this, um, that is, it's, it's specialised, it's legal language, and it has to be done in a certain way. Um, but what does that mean if for <coughs> people who, who do not have access to, under, you know, have, have not yet been taught what that language is? Do they have someone there to help them tra like to translate this, you know, legal mumbo-jumbo <laughs> sort of stuff. Um, and the reality is is that we don't do well with that. And I know I, I already covered the physical and cognitive and there's a, and a little bit of mental. There's a lot more complexity to what disability is. But this is an under-resourced area um, that it's very easy to pass, and this is something that I'm, I, I had looked at in my PhD, very easy to pass um, policy or set up a um, procedures to say, yes, we, we're, we're setting up these accessibility options. And it's very easy then to sort of not do anything more. So to go, well, we said that there has to be a ramp. 
but is it maintained? Um, is it actually at the right degree of anger to get into a building? Um, what about people who don't need a ramp so much as they you know, need uh, hearing loop um, technology because they're, they're hard of hearing? Or um, you know, assistive braille technology because um, hard of, um, of sight? Or any number of other disabilities? And those things are not well integrated. Um, and it always comes back to one thing, which is of course funding and resources. But I think it speaks to the prioritization or the lack of prioritization that we have for disability in many of these spaces. Um, going off what you were saying about the first access braille and the understanding of resources mm. being affected, mm. you know, um, I was just wondering, how do you think, if it addressed the problem in terms of like getting interpreters in, um, mm. I think it's Auslan, yeah. yeah. Um, because sometimes like you know there's differentiation in what they sign and what people can read and yep. even in languages as well mm. and if there's the right word to translate it or the right sign to translate and mm. they don't translate it properly how can they understand it if they don't understand it how do they articulate themselves even when they're under that representation yeah so that's the role of an advocate is what you need there so I mean first step is actually having enough of um, those translators so um I've spoken before with um, Nick Glasson, who is the, the disability liaison officer for the ACT courts. Um, he's the only one um, in the ACT courts, for example, that's just what he's role funded. Um, and he's spoken about how there's only so many Auslan speakers, or Auslan translators, sorry, um, in the ACT who are formally registered to be able to come and do these things. And when you're setting those up, there's like you always have to have, I think, two so they can trade off after after a while, and actually negotiating that for just like how long does the court case like court hearing go for is like mutable. So um, that's really complicated by the lack of existing registered translators. Now, what would that look like? Well, we you know really easy to, like as I said, you know, funding and resources, but how do we determine what those resources and what those funding levels will be? Well, we need to do more research. Um, that's something that I'm hoping to do in the future into that space um, in particular, yeah. And another thing just on, um, I suppose I didn't address it, but it is something that we've been looking at um, in light of the inquiry into um, ADHD right now in Australia is the role of ADHD um, in the criminal justice system because we know how overrepresented um, persons with ADHD are um, as, um, as perpetrators. Um, and as somebody who has uh, ADHD, I'm just like deeply like uh, invested in like, okay, what's going wrong? What's going wrong here? Lorana and I speak all the time about this. Like, why is this? Like, yes, it's the impulsivity <laughs> um, illness as it, as it will get joked about, but it doesn't necessarily have to correlate to criminality. It means that there is something missing in our social structures that is preventing or is, is you know, like exposing people as uh, with having ADHD as, as like a vulnerability to the criminal justice system. And I, I want to look more into why that's the case and also how like diagnostics and treatment will um, have potential benefits on sort of diverting people from those pathways potentially. Yeah. I yep. also like with that like I know from other regions that they have ADHD or um, I'm not sure about that having 
and make sure that happens yeah and like are scared to get tested really and like the money that's cost oh gosh okay yeah that's the <laughs> yeah seems like it's so expensive but resources it's horrendous it. it's horrendous the um I think there's a certain lack of regulation there that needs to be addressed um, because we are seeing both a rise in there's a rise in social popularity, obviously, around ADHD, but I think it's a bit it's a bit of a disservice to say that it's just like a popular fad um, to self-diagnosis or, or, or whatever. I think what we're actually seeing is that the prevalence of so many of these sort of cognitive spaces has just been so undervalued and... Now people are better understanding symptoms and so at least wanting to reach out for diagnose, uh, diagnosis purposes, but are stymied by these horrendous financial um, restrictions. Um, that can co- you know, cost up to $3,000 for them to, um, to be diagnosed. And I think the problem there is also in that process of like how we even manage and treat these sort of, and I'm happy to call it a disability, it is a disability. Um, and I just like I don't think that we, as a society, as a country, are recognizing the impact of things like ADHD on just your everyday life, um, and that should be addressed. And hopefully, this inquiry um, to Parliament, which I think just concluded, will start to look at that and the, the financing and resourcing and accessibility of of ADHD services and diagnosis. Yeah, because I also I know so many students in the same boat as their friends who can't get a diagnosis but are very clearly struggling at least with six symptoms that appear online with it. Yeah. And like in the I going from the medicine um point of view, mm. like a lot of you know, I have a lot of PTSD and yep. ADHD. Um and a lot of things that like I see for them is like I feel not I feel addressed and like mm-hmm. in the justice system mm-hmm. and yeah. like indigenous like I have like a Wurundjeri Pai surgery. Mm. Um mm. So I was wondering, like, how would we, well, like, I guess I'm not personally at ADHD diagnosed, but how could we, like, provide those services for victims? Yeah. So there's an underlying philosophical query here, which is, what is the purpose of the criminal justice system? And one of, I think, the most disheartening things for my students that I see is when we acknowledge we make explicit this implicit um, presumption of the criminal justice system that it's not for victim survivors courts are not about victim survivors they are about the alleged perpetrators they are set up around that um everything from you know presumption of innocence right and and, and importantly so like there is a reason why that works whether it's without criticism is, is another thing but that's you know some that, that is the, the, the process or the system of justice that we currently have collectively as a society decided upon. But then it speaks to a problem of, well, is justice actually serving those that it should be serving? Now, technically speaking, it's supposed to be serving the country. You, you'll notice in court cases it's, it's you know, the state versus the alleged perpetrator. It's not the victim versus the alleged perpetrator unless you remove any line of the, the criminal space and into the civil court system. But that's because it's actually about redressing harms against the state and not against redressing harms against the individual. Um, and I think that's where the conversation and the, 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 the interest and the hunger for things like restorative justice really come into it. Um, and I think it's really important that we, um, we continually explore that as alternative ways for redressing and minimizing harms because we see so much 
I think is unnecessary trauma and suffering and um, like long term from people believing that this is like the purpose of the justice system when it's just not like I, I don't agree with it but it's just not what the purpose is unfortunately um, and I think like restorative justice and these other forms like these non-criminal justice spaces or adjacent criminal justice spaces might perhaps be where we're heading in terms of our social collective understanding of justice and returning to the reduction of harm against the individual. So that's like so like the, the philosophical answer to your question. At the practical level, I think it is about funding those spaces. Like we have some um, restorative justice um, people here in the ACP. We have some wonderful programs in place. I think it's about expanding that. And I also think it's about expanding it outside of the jurisdiction of, of the criminal justice system formally. I think we should have restorative justice, for example, here on campus. I think one of the um, horrendous things across all universities, as we all know and right now, is the um, rates of sexual violence. And in my opinion, I feel that restorative justice is actually really would be well suited to addressing a lot of those um, as well as the preventative work um, that is being done at the moment by places like Respectful Relationships. Um, I will give a, a little plug to that because there's, we're doing an evaluation <laughs> of it in a minute. Um, but I think like that there might be this space, like this, this non-formal space, still formal systems of justice, but outside of the CJS that we should be funding um, and evaluating better to um, as I said, to start redressing those individual traumas and those individual harms. Yeah, I was just going to add, like, so as she comes back on, I have the code with the university office that we go off to when there's, like, mm. something that's talked about mm. until things happen. Yeah. And, like, there's the kind of inability of the code to even address that deep into your heart. Mm. Yeah. And how is the person accountable? Yeah, it's... And, like, that, again, goes down to this presumption, and I think it's really, like, the ANU, this is such a tough area, which, like, we're not going to have enough time to discuss properly, but, like, because of the system of justice that we have, it is so difficult. The ANU has no legal right to kick somebody out, for example, if they have not been convicted of a crime. That's really important that we acknowledge and, and grapple with, with what, what that means, of course, because that you have a situation where you have somebody who has been assaulted and potentially the person um, who, who perpetrated that assault still in the same space. Um, and like li from a legal and just perspective, as long as we're talking about justice and the concepts that we just described, then that is sort of like beyond the capacity of the college to necessarily deal with. But we also know that's not working. So one of the things that my colleagues, um, um, Meredith, um, who will be here next week, and um, my fellow PhD student, a student, um, Hannah, are involved in is an evaluation of respectful relationships at the moment because they've instituted um, a few programs that are attempting to look at these sorts of issues, one mostly in like obviously reduction of sexual assault. Um, and um, so we're we're looking at our team's looking at at is this working for students? And um, obviously, there's been a long history of institutional harm. Um, intentionally or otherwise, the ANU has harmed students through inaction on this topic, and I'm quite happy to say that <laughs> on live radio, um, because it's like it's just it's a fact. We are attempting at least, like they've hired us as researchers to look at evaluating is these programs going to help 
um, including um, with um, survivors coming to the RUN and, um, and negotiating their space and examples as opposed to the electronic transcripts and examples. One thing that we're struggling with is getting enough students to want to come and talk with us. Um, and I, I acknowledge that is because of that institutional harm. It's a very understandable position. But what I hope, and, and perhaps Meredith, you can ask her about this next week, what I hope is that we can get more students to come to us, like us as researchers, as criminologists. We're not the ANU. We're not doing this on behalf of the ANU or like the some sort of, we're not, we're not going to go in this space forward and, and only make our findings on the side of the ANU. But without data from students, we're very limited in what we can actually work with. So this, I guess this, you did ask about a plug before. I guess yep. this is <laughs> my plug. If people want to get involved with these sorts of, um, like coming and talking to us, um, that would be, uh, yeah, it would be incredible. Um, at some point, we all have to come to the table in good faith and, and decide that we're going to work together to, to fix a problem. Um, and that's going to be really painful for a lot of people, but hopefully really beneficial in the long run for future students and future generations of students. I think, interestingly enough, my penology class actually talked about this this week yeah. on like different forms of justice and how punishment, when it first came about, had certain objectives and aims it wanted to achieve. Mm. So I think, as, as I said before, that everyone probably has different benchmarks on what they think um, is enough to make them feel justice for whatever they have suffered. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it it's sort of returning, like they have said that the state has stolen the crime and like the state is fighting the offender. Yeah. But now it's like, I, I, I don't know. I hopefully see that it's more of the state returning the, the crime mm. back to the victim mm. and so that the victim can can express what they actually want mm. from 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 the criminal justice system or whatever mm -hmm. or whatever procedure that they're going to go through with it. Mm -hmm. But but then I also acknowledge that then is there's some inconsistency in in punishment or yeah. quote unquote punishment because yeah, like everyone has different benchmarks. So, so like, I don't know. It's a whole big topic that that maybe Laura now would would, I would, think so, would debate yeah, she would definitely on. Get into yeah, that. Um, and it's also like it's the topic of studying criminology. So I guess if people want to talk about it, um, they should come and do a degree with us, like you guys. Yeah, best choice. Uh, fun fact on how I started my criminology degree. I just took Crim One Double O One in my first semester at ANU. Adam Masters, who was who was the yep. course convener and lecturer, yep. he spoke to me after class and was like, "Oh, just submit the application for for a double degree, and I'll accept it. Don't worry, we will <laughs> take you under. We'll take you with us." And like, yeah, that's we, how yeah. we do. We just like we actually just go around collecting you guys. We still we still free people from it, like places all the time. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. I was actually gonna ask. Jeff, if she had any plugs, but it seems like Jeff has... I've just plugged. Yeah. yeah. But I guess, like, just to conclude, I'd like to thank you for, for having me on and how exciting it is that you're all pursuing this um, this podcast idea, this radio um, program. Um, and we're really, like, the criminal on behalf of the criminology team, we're really excited <coughs> to see what you do with it. And um, uh, I hope you'll have me back one day. I'll have something else to talk about, I hope. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been, like, such an engaging discussion and very... Very interesting questions and kind of like answers. So lots of depth. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun to have 
the platform to pick our professors' brains on like <laughs> what their niche interests are and like the the space and research that they have they have done so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks Excellent. for doing having me in person. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again.